Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Is Biden's war on civility destroying America? I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-M, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Surely, Forgotten Founders. I didn't mention the title, but you'll get that free of charge just for giving me that email address. You can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that, but purchase a class or 20 there. It keeps this podcast free of charge. Also... You can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can go to Spotify for podcasters. You can go to YouTube, click on the super thanks button. Lots of great ways to support the show financially, but as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review wherever you can. Leave a text review wherever you can or a comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All right. Well, let's talk about Joe Biden and civility. Now, yesterday... I uh, addressed a piece that was at American Greatness and how there's this myth, a Lincolnian myth, of a unified America. If we all just were in the same direction, everything would be all right. And it's based on an understanding of America that was, I think, propagated during the 1940s, really World War II. If you want to go back to a point in American history that really solidified a myth of America. It's World War II. And that myth, of course, is American nationalism. So let's let's go back to the 1940s, right? We, we get to 1941. There certainly is a lot of opposition to American entrance into that war. We know that there were some pretty powerful voices against it. You know, Charles Lindbergh is the most conspicuous. And of course, the Roosevelt administration did everything they could to destroy his character. If you want to read a great chapter about Charles Lindbergh and his father, C.A. Lindbergh, I, I wrote one in Forgotten Conservatives in American History. C.A. wasn't really a conservative, but he had some conservative tendencies, which is why I put him in there with his son, who was anti-war, anti-banking. These are pretty important things. He was often called a red Republican at times, so he shaded towards you know maybe a little more communist, but C.A. Lindbergh was right on central banking and, of course, war and the war racket. And his son was good on those things, too. So when you look at 1941, in fact, September 11th, 1941, Charles Lindbergh makes a very famous speech in Des Moines, Iowa, which the Roosevelt administration will then capitalize on because they say, well, he's anti-Semitic because he brought up Jewish support for entrance into World War II. And Lindbergh wrote in his diary before that, I'm, I'm going where angels fear to tread, right? I'm going to do this knowing full well that this is going to be used against me, even though the statement wasn't anti-Semitic. 
And Lindbergh was never pro-Nazi. Um, he did accept a medal from the from the Germans in the presence of a Roosevelt administration official. And he actually asked, should I accept this medal? And they said, yeah, go for it. So he, he didn't do anything that they didn't know about. Rose, uh, Lindbergh, of course, admired the German people, but he didn't like Hitler. Um, so, But what the problem with all this, of course, is the useful opposition and the way the Democrats have done that. And I talked about that yesterday, the way the Democrats have used the useful opposition of the Republicans. In 1941, there was a pretty strong opposition to American entrance into that war. Just like in 1916, when we have Woodrow Wilson against uh, Charles Hughes, uh, there is the, the Wilson campaign slogan was he kept us out of war, even though he's bulldozing the United States into war. And this is why William Jennings Bryan resigned as Secretary of State. He understood that Wilson was trying to push for war. But that war had a lot of opposition. World War II, though, did not. Once you get to December of 1941, after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, which, of course, Roosevelt knew about beforehand, uh, if you read Charles Tansel's Back Door to War, there's a lot of smoking gun evidence there that, Ro that uh, Roosevelt knew it was going to happen and just let it happen. Uh, this is, um, I mean, just there's some really funny stuff that's said in that book. But... Funny in the way that he wrote it, not funny because of what it did. So we get involved in World War II, and then there's this major push to rally around the United States and rally around the flag. I have a, a friend that's in his 80s, and he says that you know, he remembers that time. He was young, but he remembers the war. And he remembers right after the war that people started flying U.S. flags. And before that, they didn't really do that very much. Uh, you did have bunting, right? If you know what bunting is, or these you know, drapes that you put out at a ball game. You can see pictures uh, in the early 20th century where you have bunting at ball games at times, where people would put that out. And you certainly had, you know, around World War One, a type of rah-rah patriotism going on in America. But after that, you didn't see it as much. And it wasn't until we get to the Roosevelt administration that you have uh, the national anthem codified that you have this push for a solidification of a national identity in America. We know that this is when you get uh, the Pledge of Allegiance becoming very popular in the United States during World War II. That creates, along with the myth of Abraham Lincoln, this very powerful and extremely effective Myth of American nationalism. World War II. And so the United States is going to go, everybody gets, gets into the war. You know, it's been said by many men who served in that war, if you weren't in the army, people would wonder what the heck is wrong with you. This is where, uh, you know, if you go back and you look at those, if you're you know, a comic book person, which I'm not, but um, I've watched some of those Marvel movies, but the one with Captain America where he was just desperate to try to get into the military because all the all the men were joining the military in World War II. They had to. If you weren't, something was wrong with you. And that was the consensus, right? This is when you create this, we're going to solidify the United States. Everybody's going to come together. doesn't matter if you're from you know New York or if you're from Boston or if you're from Charleston, South Carolina, if you're from... Los Angeles, California, or Boise, Idaho, it doesn't matter where you're from. 
We're all Americans now. We're going to go fight the Japanese and we're going to go fight the Nazis and we're going to win this war and we're going to make America the premier power in the world. Now, of course, once all these people came back home, then everything becomes interesting. And it becomes interesting because of the, the unity and then how that played out in politics. We know that didn't... Now, from that generation... They were always talking about unity. Let's be unified. We're going to come together. We're going to try to agree on these things now. Of course, the thorn in that was the South for them. It was Southern intransigence at uh, needed and necessary reforms in American nationalism. These were seen as national issues, which were always the issues that started popping up the civil rights movement, always seen as state issues, North and South, before the end of World War II. World War II changes the perspective. It creates everything becomes a national problem. Everything needs a national solution. Dwight Eisenhower, as president after World War II, comes up with the national solution in his mind to the civil rights problem in America. He was the first one to really do it. This is why Southerners started calling even in that time, right, the Second Reconstruction. It was beginning uh, almost, you know, a hundred years. It was about a hundred years after the 1850s, but. You know, we're getting close to the centennial. Now, Eisenhower, of course, also admired Robert E. Lee, but we're looking at some things really starting to shift in America, but focusing on the center. you got to remember, Eisenhower was the most famous general officer in America next to George Washington and Robert E. Lee. Those are the only two that could compete with Eisenhower at that point. I mean, even Grant probably was second fiddle to Eisenhower at that point of those other three, right? I mean, it was it was Lee, it was Washington, it was Eisenhower. And then there were others. I mean, people talked about Grant and Sherman and, uh, you know, Winfield Scott was always still out there a little bit, but Andrew Jackson, there were certainly people that uh, were in that conversation. But this is what the left couldn't stand about Robert E. Lee. He was elevated to the status they think he didn't necessarily deserve. And a lot of neoconservatives and anti-Southern conservatives had the same exact position. So, you get a shifting focus to the center. And it creates this Lincolnian nationalist myth in America. Everything now has to become driven to a political solution from the center. And now we're talking about civility. Well, why is it that Americans are so angry? I actually did a whole podcast on this. Why are Americans angry? And this is the same thing I talked about then. I've been doing this show since 2016. You want to go back and catch all those other episodes. I've had people comment on these things saying, wow, this is seven years ago. It's still just as relevant today because, well, it is, right? I mean, the things I were predicting seven years ago have come true. And this stuff is still around. I mean, these people don't go, well, seven years is not that long, but... These people don't go away. So we have this push for civility. What does that actually mean? Does it mean compromise? Does it mean we're just going to have disagreements and we're going to all get along that way? Again, the World War II generation was accepting of these things because of the common foe in the Japanese and the Germans. And it didn't matter what you thought about politics. It didn't matter what your ideology was. You could certainly get along with people who didn't agree with you. It was a sense of conviviality. We're all Americans. We're all doing the right thing. But eventually, the left figured out that they could use that that conviviality to their advantage. They could use that type of acceptance to their advantage. And then when they got in power, 
they would remove the opposition because the left is always hypersensitive. But when you make everything national and you put everything to the center, well, that gives them an opportunity to destroy any kind of opposition because it comes from the top down. So what we're seeing in America now is a resistance to this kind of nationalism without actually saying that. They don't, I think a lot of conservatives don't really realize what they're opposing yet. They just think if they say the Pledge of Allegiance and sing the national anthem and praise, sing Hosannas Abraham Lincoln, that everything's going to be okay. That's going to save them. But what they're actually doing in that is buying in to the American nationalist narrative, which is destructive to their interests. Federalism was always there to protect political minorities. It was always there to protect culture, regional state cultures from aggressive others, which could have been New England if you're in the South, or it could have been the South if you're in New England. It was always there to do that, to solve these real contentious culture war issues, which, by the way, were there in the 1780s. We think all the founding generation were unified. They were just sitting around holding hands, singing kubaya. These people hated each other at times. So much, though, that they would actually, as I said yesterday, engage in political violence. They would engage in duels and other things. This kind of stuff happened all the time. So to say that we have this very peaceful America and that all of a sudden it's gotten so cantankerous because of Joe Biden. Well, the left is certainly uh, upset about the fact that the right has actually started having a backbone and opposing what they want to do. See, the Republicans wouldn't do that. They would just accept their second-tier status and say, yeah, we're fine, just... Give us a few bones here. We like being in Washington, D.C. It doesn't really matter. We're all the national government. This is all good for America. As soon as they started saying, nah, that's not going to go this way. We want, we want to take this down. We don't like this apparatus. The real conservatives in America, and I say real conservatives, not in terms of what we consider to be traditional conservatism, but conserving the establishment center took hold, and they want to destroy anything that would limit their power. They are the monarchists. They are the Tories. They're the court. They're the establishment. This is what it means. If you look at what happened in, say, you know, any, any place where you had a monarchy, the court would always try to rally around the court and oppose the country, the external, from tearing down their power. They circle the wagons around power. And for many people, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, right, it's all about power. Civility doesn't matter when you're trying to gain power. It never will. So when Biden doesn't really push civility, he talks about civility, he talks about getting along, unity, all these things, it's under the guise of his agenda. We have to unify around my agenda. We have to, because this is what's best for America. It's the establishment agenda. Anyone that opposes that has to be crushed. This is why voices like Tucker Carlson were a problem for conservatives like Rupert Murdoch because that's not the establishment. This is why dissident voices are always called crackpots and kooks and everything else if you're on the right. Now, if you're on the left, you're really not a dissident voice. You're just a little bit further to the left of the establishment, and that's okay because they'll eventually get to where you are. If you're on the right, you pose a threat to their establishment. Unless 
you are an establishment Republican, which means you're okay with the apparatus, you're okay with the national authority, you're okay with all of that. You just want them to spend money on guns rather than butter. And you're willing to trim, you're willing to keep the butter, but you just want to shave off a little bit of the butter. You just don't want a full stick of butter, you want three quarters of a stick of butter. Or you want half a stick of butter and the guns has to take up the other half. So instead of a full plate of butter, you got half butter and half guns. For the right, for the left, it's a full plate of butter. Or maybe 80% butter and 20% guns. we got to remember that the major wars in American history in the last century have all been started by progressives. They don't mind the guns if it can mean they can increase power. That's the way it always works. So I want to get into this piece that was at the Washington Times. It's by Tom Basile, who is a uh, talking head on Newsmax. But he writes his piece, Biden's War on Civility. You see, he's operating from a point, this is important, of Lincolnian nationalism. Now, he and I are the same age. And so he grew up in this, um, and I did too, grew up in this very Lincolnian nationalist world. Grandparents are World War II generation. Parents are, you know, they're the, the baby boomer generation. And so you grow up in this very much Lincolnian America. You, you learn, to, if, if you're a conservative and you never see anything else, you think all this just makes sense. Lincoln Memorial, Abraham Lincoln. This is great. Lincoln's great. And then you have everything reinforcing it coming out of conservative ink, whether it's the neocons or the Straussians. They all reinforce this stuff to their own detriment. That's the sad thing. They can't see it. So he says, with scenes of January 6th predictably flashing on the screen, President Biden announced his run for re-election, labeling those who disagree with him as extremists who fuel hatred and threaten American democracy. So uh, Biden's going to, this is what we're fighting against, this kind of political unrest. Of course, we all know that the left is the most violent political faction in the history of the world and that they have been rioting and burning and looting for a long time. But when the right does it, well, you're threatening the establishment. See, leftist, leftist burning, rioting, looting doesn't, doesn't destroy the establishment. It doesn't threaten the establishment because the establishment is them. What they're doing is trying to knock out the political, the other side, right? They're, they're trying to get rid of that. So when the other side decides to use their tactics, it's not going to work. Just like if you had a protest, if you were a conservative and you had a protest, let's say it's, we'll take a Confederate monument, right? And you had a thousand people show up and they did a peaceful protest. If that monument was going to be taken down, say the monument, the cranes have shown up and a thousand people show up and they sit down right there. And they peacefully protest. And all they're going to do is sit there. They're not going to do anything else. They're just going to peacefully protest. And they were arrested. Or let's say the other side shows up and tries to do violence. And, there are, and those, those conservatives are arrested. That doesn't matter. They deserved it. Because their protest is immoral. You see? This is important. So when conservatives use the left tactics, it doesn't work. It never works. This is why they have to come up with, with ways, as I talked about last week, to use the states as the system, the vehicle, to just tell the left, no, shut up. These petulant children have to stop being a problem. You just tell them, no, shut up, like you would a two-year-old, and you make it difficult for them to do much of anything. 
Those are the ways you have to do it. Now, he says, we don't live in a democracy, of course. We live in a republic, if we can keep it, as Benjamin Franklin admonished. I mean, all this stuff is just, you know, red meat conservatism. It's platitudes. It's slogan. It's kind of boring. It is boring. We don't live in a republic either. We live in a federal republic, which is an important distinction to make. But again, Basile is, you know, this mainstream vanilla Washington Times. But there are some things in this why I wanted to get through this. One of the central tactics of the left is using phony threats to a fictitious American democracy as a way to slowly persuade Americans to accept authoritarianism. So move right out of the Communist Party playbook. So yeah, you create the boogeyman, but who's been doing this? I mean, the left does it, but so does the right. They all do it. When I say the right, meaning establishment conservatives, they all do it. Mr. Biden's campaign will advance that strategy through a relentless war on civility that defines our politics today. Mr. Biden has repeatedly demonstrated that he cares little about the unity he professes to want for America. The only way to continue to remake this country in the image of the left envisions is to divide us further, whatever the cost. Now, continue to remake the country. He's going to quote Abraham Lincoln later in this piece. But the people that started talking about remaking America were the Republicans in the 1860s. The Republicans in the 1850s. They wanted to remake America. If you continue to believe in Lincolnian America and Lincolnian Party, the grand old stupid party, you are bound to be defeated because that party is, at its origin, revolutionary. It was going to remake America. This is why when we talk, when I talked about Ron Unz last week and the neocons, he points out, and this is true, the establishment, this has been going on for a long time, the establishment now is the Lincolnian, neocon, Straussian branch. It doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. So they want to remake America in the 1860s Republican image. That's the goal. That's a whole new founding. And some people are openly talking about that now. That's what you have to oppose. Now to do that, you're going to get called all kinds of names. Oh, what do you mean you oppose that? So you don't really want civil rights? So you, you don't really believe that non-white people should be able to vote or non-white people should participate? That's not what you're saying. You're saying that what was happening there was disastrous because what you've done is open this Pandora's box to all the stuff we've got. But this is the tactic they're going to use against you. He says, civility, however, is a salve for a wounded nation. It is kryptonite to the left. Conservatives and all Americans who care about this country should use it as a shield and a sword. So use civility as a shield and a sword. Be civil. Now, I don't disagree with him. I think, again, as I said, if you engage in the left's tactics, which is violence, intimidation, uh, even you know peaceful protests, you are not going to win that. Now, you don't have to, uh, I mean, you can call them stupid. You can do what, say what they are. They are those things. But you shouldn't adopt their tactics. However, there are those, and this is what I talked about, you know, a couple of weeks back with the, uh, we need the barbarian to save us from the barbarians. There are those that certainly believe it. The real, it's not civility. It's just simply saying, the center really doesn't have any, the emperor has no clothes. We're just going to work from the bottom up here. That's how you save America. We're just going to ignore it. We're going to ignore everything that happens in another state. I don't care. I'm going to work right here. If I don't have all this stupid culture war nonsense in my town, I'm going to keep it that way. And then my town's going to be okay. 
And when the rabble-rousers come in, you get them out. And use whatever tactics you can, politically, to keep them out. For nearly a century, authoritarians in this country, either Americans or foreign agitators, have attempted to destroy the basic unity and civility that have made this nation strong. Now look at what he says here. For nearly a century, through our 2023, he's saying, uh, when is he pointing to? Is it, is it uh, the 1930s? Is it the 1940s? So he's basically admitting that World War II was the turning point. The Great Depression and World War II, when Republicans became... A useless minority. A politically useless minority. That's the unity we need to strive for. So Franklin Roosevelt, Lincolnian nationalism, is that, I mean, is that it? Because that's pretty bad. They have attempted to justify violence and create speech codes. They've intentionally stoked racial and economic division while establishing an elite corporate and government class that controls levers of money and information sought to make more middle-class Americans dependent or financially unstable. This is what the agitators have done. Okay. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with some of this. These people were in the establishment. This is the Democrats that took things over, and of course the Lincolnian nationalists. Remember the left wants as many people as miserable as possible. Miserable people are more malleable. Republicans have allowed leftists to get away with being the self-appointed guardians of the soul of America and the true defenders of the so-called democracy. This began in the 1930s. The intentions of one party and the ignorance of the other have slowly heightened an overall sense of tension among the American population. But that's not what it is. It's more about nationalism. That's what's heightened an overall sense of tension. Everything coming from the center. Perhaps you feel it, he says. Perhaps for the first time in your lifetime, you believe the country is careening radically off course. You watch the news and get a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach that a tipping point has been reached from which there is no return. Okay, if you watch the news and you say, oh my gosh, look what's happening in California. Do you live there? Look at what's happening in Ohio. Do you live there? If everybody just watched their own local stuff, you wouldn't worry about that as much. And by the way, that would make everything a lot more peaceful. Or, if you can, you know, try, to, try to make your own personal life that way. It's hard to do, I know. You know. History junkies, news junkies, it gets really difficult. But this is what's happening. It's the national, it's the perspective that, gosh, if those people in California are acting this way, I've got to do something about it. Do you live there? Well, then no. Well, then don't do anything about it. Let the people be stupid there, and the people that have to take care of it, take care of it there. The left's word civility is emboldening Marxism. It is also depressing the spirit of those who know this direction of America is destructive. That feeling of being overwhelmed by the bad news, the violence and the hostility is intended to elicit a sense of powerlessness and acquiescence. This is where Think Locally, Act Locally comes in. We know all that stuff's out there. So work within your towns and your counties and your states to keep this stuff out. Come up with legal ways to do it. It's also intended to make more people on the right lash out. Remember the grave mistake of the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Pro-freedom Americans are being pulled into unfamiliar territory. They're feeling more anxious about the future of the country. They barely recognize President Biden's America. Well, maybe you recognize your own town. I recognize my own town. I'm not really worried about what's happening somewhere else, but, you know, not so bad here. There are always problems. There's always people that want to agitate and do things, but it's generally pretty good. And I think most Americans in red states would feel that way too. 
So how do you keep the blue staters out? How do you keep the blue states in their own blue states? That becomes the issue. Again, homeless camps in Los Angeles don't bother me because guess what? I'm not going to Los Angeles. The people of Los Angeles can clean that up. Or you know, the, uh, the problem of homeless uh, camps in San Francisco and all the nastiness that comes with that. I don't go to San Francisco. Ever. So why would I care? That's a, that's a situation for California. Now, if we didn't have a central government with all the power, then California would be irrelevant for most Americans. They could have a sick, disgusting place in California. Or, I mean, a lot of people love California. California's got a great economy. California's doing this and that. You know, there are areas of California, very low crime, very low poverty and these kind of things. So, I mean, keep that there too. We're, nobody's trying to take that away from you, but this is the thing. Do we want to make America California or do you want to make America your state and keep it that way because America really is where you live. That's the real patriotism of it. But those feelings cannot be allowed to lead to an abandoning of the civility that is under attack precisely because it is so vital to our strength. Civility works. Recently, a student at Yale University penned an op-ed that sums up how resisting the left's scream culture can at once be an effective counter and expose their authoritarian viewpoints. The student complained that a group of pro-life students had set up a table to invite what she lamented were polite, logical debates about the rights of the unborn. She wrote, quote, Their smug civility was infuriating. Their invitations for debate inflammatory. I could barely seed out my opinion. The discussion never should have been entertained because simply opening space for this logical, respectful debate itself is a threat to human rights. Some arguments are dangerous for even existing. Well, you do have, I mean, these are the anti-liberal liberals, and they've been around a long time. The authoritarians. See, I mean, Brazil's right. These people have been around a long time. Tucker Carlson said last week before he was unceremoniously jettisoned from Fox News that we should take a few minutes each day to pray for America. He's right. Those who care about the future of American freedom should pray for the strength to counter those in our midst who, with fidelity to the grace and civility that is poison to the leftists who seek to transform the country. Uh, more importantly, you should be going to your local school board and your city council meetings and just trying to keep all this stuff out. Right. Do that stuff on a regular basis. That's what you really need to be doing and praying too. But praying for the people around you and the communities that you're in. Not something 2,000 miles away. And this is where you get to this Lincolnian nationalism. President Abraham Lincoln's quote, let us have faith that right makes might. And that, and that faith led us to the end, dare to do our duty as we understand it, has a whole new meaning today. Anyone who cites Abraham Lincoln as a model of civility? The man that was willing to wage war on the rest of Americans simply because they dared exercise the right of self-determination should never be considered to be uh, anyone who should be trusted. Never cite Lincoln as an example of civility. That is a stupid position. But this is what we get from the right. Staying true to that American civility exhibited by our founders is a key ideological weapon against authoritarians who seek to divide and conquer. Exhibited by our founders? Civility? Are you serious? These people weren't civil. These people weren't civil in political dissent at all, in any way. This is the problem. We have this myth of America. As people sitting around the campfire sing, you know, singing Kumbaya and holding hands in the founding generation, that didn't happen at all. In fact, it, what you really need to talk about there is the World War II generation. That's the only civil generation, really, that we've had in American history. That's it. They created a myth. That myth is the real problem. 
We cannot lose sight of who we really are. If conservatives become unrecognizable, our nation most certainly will as well, and there will be no turning back. Now, again, I advocate civil discourse and try to... But a lot of these people can't be reasoned with, so you just try to come up with ways politically to minimize their impact. That's the important thing to do at the state and local level. But I found this piece interesting because it piggybacked on what I talked about yesterday uh, with the piece on... uh, the Mexicanization of American politics. So, all right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.